From a secret location in room 100 of 540 Jack Gibbs Boulevard, this is Craft. I'm your host, Doug Dangler. I'm here today with John Beacom, an Ohio State University professor of physics and astronomy and the director of the Center for Cosmology and Astroparticle Physics, CCAP. He'll present at the March 19th Science Sundays at the Ohio State University on Neutrino Astronomy Made Easy. Welcome to Craft, John Beacom. Thank you, Doug. So let's talk about neutrinos because it's on everybody's lips and uh, we, we want to know more about it. Um, when we get into talking about neutrinos, I just I understand there are like three stages to sort of the discovery of many things in science and neutrinos falls into that. So maybe you can tell me a little bit about how neutrinos were discovered. The first idea is where did the concept of a neutrino come from? And then the second is how did we measure them in the laboratory? Then the third is how we use them as astrophysical messengers. So the laboratory part came from, imagine you did the following experiment. You had a round, perfectly round water balloon, and you, you dropped it on the floor. And instead of leaving a circle on the floor, it left a perfect hemisphere, meaning like all the stuff went to one side. You would know that something weird happened. Something must have carried away energy and momentum in the other direction because there was no sideways momentum when you began. But afterwards, there was. One direction was preferred. That's weird. That exact same thing was seen in a certain kind of nuclear decays, where the you know, nucleus is sitting there, minding its own business. Some stuff you can see all shot out to one side, and seemingly nothing went out the other way. But we, because of the laws of conservation of momentum and energy, we know that something had to go away the other way. And for lack of a better name, they called that a neutrino. They had no idea what it was. They had no idea how to detect it. They only knew that it existed in some way to carry away energy momentum. An alternative was energy momentum are not conserved, but that was wrong. So once they'd figured that out, people started looking for this particle. And originally it was talked about, the person who came up with the idea said, I've done something terrible. I've done a terrible thing. I've invented a particle that cannot be detected. Something close to that. About 25 years later, after years and years of work, obviously, um, people detected that particle in the laboratory. And that took, uh, that was a project called Project Poltergeist. So even in the 1950s, physicists had a great sense of humor. The original idea to detect neutrinos was even better. So Project Poltergeist was, let's put a small detector next to a nuclear reactor, like really, really close. Let's just go hang out next to a nuclear reactor and build a detector. Sounds like a great way to stay healthy. Yes. And the, the original idea was worse. The original idea was, let's build a detector, and then let's set off an atomic bomb. <laughs> Yeah, and then we'll, we'll basically we'll dig a giant pit, and then uh, at the bottom of the pit we'll set off an atomic bomb, and at the instant we set off the atomic bomb we'll drop a detector down the hole, and then it can detect the neutrinos, and then oh yeah, I guess the atomic bomb was at the top, and at the bottom was a giant pile of pillows that would catch the detector, right? And then later they would figure out what it saw. So cooler heads prevailed, and eventually they decided that working at a nuclear reactor would be a better idea. In the decades since, um, people have measured neutrinos in lots of ways. They've measured them at reactors. They've measured them at accelerators. All kinds of human-made neutrinos have been detected. And so they're now firmly in the camp of uh, well-understood particles like the electron and the proton. They're, they're harder to detect in those things, but they're well understood. And now we're opening up a new window where we're starting to use them to explore the universe itself. Okay. So how are they being used to explore the universe themselves? Because these are tiny, tiny particles, yes. and yet they're being used in astrophysics, which uh, always seems to me like giant, you're, you're way, way, way far away, but they explain things. And how, how does that happen? 
Okay, that's a great point. But let's back up and say, you know, photons, particles of light, are also super tiny. And we use them to understand the biggest things in the universe. Nobody thinks that's a problem. So everybody knows what an electron is. You know, you uh, rub a balloon on your head and then you can stick the balloon to the wall, static electricity, because electrons are moving around. So a neutrino is exactly like an electron, except it has no charge, and it has almost no mass. And because it has no charge, it almost never interacts. And other than that, it's basically the same as an electron. So it's a, it's a really crappy electron. Because of that, it can go incredible distances without being absorbed. So uh, it, in that sense, it acts a little bit like, uh, you know, ordinary optical photons can't go through my hand, but x-rays can. And neutrinos can not only go through my hand, they can go through the whole Earth, they can go through the whole Sun, they can go through much more than that because they barely, barely interact. So the reason we can use neutrinos to do astronomy is that they're almost perfect messengers in the sense that they go right, right through everything, including right from the centers of stars to us. Can't be blocked by the Earth. They don't get deflected by magnetic fields. All of those things, they're ideal. The only problem is they're hard to detect. So the thing is, though, if you could detect them, then you get to do something different. So when we look at the sun, we're looking, you know, oh, did your mother tell you not to look at the sun? Right, yes. But yeah. You did it anyway, right? Well, you know, for a brief moment, okay. I looked at the sun. So when you look at the sun, um, what you're seeing is photons, and you're seeing photons from the outside. You're only seeing a very, very thin layer on the outside of the sun. With neutrinos, if you had neutrino eyes like... Uh, Jordi LaForge in Star Trek, you may remember, then um, what you would see is not the outside of the sun, but you would see into the center. So it's like a much, much better X-ray. And uh, because of that power, neutrinos can reveal things about astrophysical objects that photons can't. So for example, the prevailing theory of why the sun shines is nuclear fusion reactions. Everybody knows that. You, you have classified clearance, right? Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. yeah, totally. <laughs> and all your listeners? Oh, yes, you can trust You can trust the NPR audience. Okay, so um, I can tell you that it's based on the uh, nuclear fusion reactions of protons with protons, which eventually build up helium and other light elements. Now, an alternative idea that actually was in the literature and uh, in a paper by Stephen Hawking was Maybe there aren't really nuclear reactions. Maybe there's a black hole at the center of the sun, and it's gobbling up matter, and that's releasing energy. And how could you tell the difference between these two? The outside of the sun would look the same. If there's something in the sun that provides a lot of energy, the outside will be hot. And the question is, what keeps it hot? And in that scenario, you can't tell the difference. But if you can detect the neutrinos, you can say, aha, nuclear reactions make neutrinos. A crazy black hole gobbling material does not. And we have detected neutrinos from the sun, so um, neutrinos one, Stephen Hawking zero. <laughs> okay. Not to rip on Stephen Hawking. No, no. no. So, so what does it mean now that you can see them, now that you can detect them and you can you know, track them and things like that? What does that open up for astrophysics besides being able to x-ray the sun? Yeah, so besides the sun, so one, one more thing about the sun. On the outside of the sun, the surface is about roughly 5,500 degrees Kelvin or Celsius. It doesn't matter at this high temperature. With, by measuring neutrinos, we get to figure out the temperature at the center of the sun, and that's 15.7 million degrees Kelvin or Celsius. And again, it doesn't matter here. And we know that to about 1% precision. So I don't know my weight to 1% precision, 
but we know the temperature of the center of the sun, which cannot be seen with photons, to 1% precision. And the reason is because we measured those neutrinos so precisely. So now uh, we can use neutrinos to look inside other astronomical objects, starting with the sun, just like human optical astronomy started by looking at the sun, or neutrino astronomy started by looking at the sun. So since then, we've seen also uh, neutrinos from an exploding star called a supernova. Now the thing about a supernova is there's a brilliant optical explosion on the outside and materials flying out and it looks like a new star on the sky. People have been looking at them for thousands of years. But it's hard to tell what's going on in the center and that's where neutrinos come in. So the whole thing happens very fast, but there's something providing a lot of energy. And in order to figure out what that is, uh, neutrinos are the only way to really see into the deep core and find out. And in 1987, at the very beginning of my uh, physics career, when I was actually an undergrad taking my first physics class, a uh, supernova exploded in a mm, kind of a uh, suburb galaxy of the Milky Way. Normally nothing happens in the suburbs, but eh, you know, sometimes. And we detected about 20 neutrinos from that supernova, and that proved our prevailing theory of what was happening in, inside the supernova. So there were alternative ideas of what could make a supernova, but this said, aha, no, really what's happening is um, the basically the entire core of the star is collapsing into something that's a giant nucleus called a neutron star. Later, it may have turned into a black hole. We actually still don't know if it stayed a, a neutron star or maybe became a black hole. But uh, either way, you get a lot of neutrinos, and that was seen. Now, uh, in the past few years, there's been another very exciting detection of uh, neutrinos from outer space, and that is the ice cube detector at the South Pole has detected high-energy neutrinos. And first, let me say about how high-energy these are. So uh, optical light is in a certain unit. Let's call it one energy unit. That's short for one electron volt in physics terms. The neutrinos detected from the sun are about a million times more energetic per particle, and the neutrinos detected from a supernova are about 10 million times more energetic. Now, the neutrinos detected by ice cube um, go up to um, 10 to the 15 times more energetic than optical light. So incredibly in huge amount of energy per particle. Do you measure that by the speed? Uh, no. The, so all of these, it's a great question. Because neutrinos have almost no mass, almost all of these neutrinos are going at, you know, 0.9999999, whatever the, the speed of light. So the way um, you measure energy is when the neutrino, well, almost all the time the neutrino goes to the detector and nothing happens, so you didn't do anything. But occasionally the neutrino will scatter with something in the detector and make a mess. And how much energy it transfers from the neutrino to some ordinary particles like electrons and protons, then they make a mess and that deposits that energy in the detector. And uh, that's what Ice Cube and the other detectors measure. So uh, because those particles interact like crazy, protons, electrons, they interact a lot. So, and then when they interact, they, uh, among other things, they make flashes of light that can be detected. So these neutrinos go up to about 10 to the 15 times the uh, energy of an optical photon. So it's incredible. You know, let's pause and think about that a second. You know, the ordinary business of optical astronomy is conducted in energy units of one. So let's say it's like an analogy to one dollar. You know, your, everybody's commerce is in units of a dollar. But then, all of a sudden, somebody shows up and they plunk down a 10 to the 15 dollar bill on the table and say, this is how, what I'm spending today. Where the hell did that come from? 
So what, what could have made that? So uh, the Large Hadron Collider at CERN, uh, which is the result of thousands of people working over decades, you know, some of the greatest minds in physics, really laboring for years and years and years on extremely careful work, that reaches 10 to the 13 electron volts. So that, imagine how many human hours and how much technology went into building that, and then nature's like, eh, yeah, I did something. It's not that great, but it goes up to 10 to the 15. So it's pretty amazing that nature by accident is making things that are incredibly better than we can make in the laboratory. And in fact, actually, separately, there's evidence that nature can make particles up to 10 to the 20 electron volts. And some of my colleagues at Ohio State, Professor Amy Connolly and Professor Jim Beatty, are looking for those associated neutrinos with those sources. And all this will be brought out on March 19th when you talk at the Science Sundays and make neutrino astronomy easy for the people in the audience, right? Yes, sir. Okay. Professor John Beacom, I thank you very much for being here today to talk to me about neutrinos and how the impact that they have on our world. Thanks, Doug. For more information from my guests, visit www.crafttheshow.com. This is Doug Dangler. Until next time, be creative. <laughs>